Welcome to another week of the Learning Curve listeners. And we are back this time again with co-host, the great, the one and only, the Darrell Bradford. Darrell? Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank yes. you for coming back. That you're lowering your standards to come and spend time with me. No, I'm- no, I think Gerard is throwing a serial taunt from a yacht somewhere, <laughs> right? Isn't that what we've determined? Is that oh, where he is? Well, yeah. He is on vacay in an undisclosed location. So I think we all know what that means. He's so, smart. That's what it means. He's totally smart. Yeah. It's, I, listen, I was on vacay last week for Michigan, but I made it. But it's okay. You know, no shade of Gerard. We love him. We love him. How are you doing? Here, thinking about the new school year and what is or isn't going to happen and the bluster over remote options and all those other things. Plus, Tottenham won this weekend. So I feel good. Well, there you go. I was going to ask you, we haven't talked since Messi uh, made the announcement that he's going to Paris. So, Indeed. It's a, the, you can always count on world soccer to give you a good example. <laughs> the rich getting richer. There it Which, is. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, here we are in the, I'm, you know, recording from the home of the New England Patriots. Not a fan, but just saying. Um, <laughs> you know, some days I just cringe at reading the news. We thought this was all going to be over. And it just, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about like, back to school in my personal life is please dear god get these kids out of the house why does school start after <laughs> right? like i got like five interruptions to a meeting today i'm like this has to end but then on the other end of it parents who are already back in school teachers who are already back in school just dealing with none of it's fun anywhere ever it's interesting though that you raise this i remember sort of popping off on on that cesspool of human opinion called twitter a couple of weeks ago and I was get it though. I try, I try, yeah. I try. But you know, the the one thing, like like policy aside, right? Like masks, no masks, open, no no open, whatever. Uh, normal, no normal. The one thing families and everybody else just want is like some certainty. You know, yeah. like this yeah. is what we're this is what we're gonna try, right? This is what's gonna happen if things go sideways. And the absence of that certainty to me is just like such a grand repudiation of the people who are in charge of K-12 in this country. It's it's pretty there. It's a consistent pattern of not rising to the moment. And it's disappointing. It's it's the absence of certainty. And it also feels like the intentional, like just creation of chaos. Well said. Yep. Right. And it's driving all of Listen, I'm a lucky person. I have some certainty about when these children are going to be out of the house and, you know, learning to read and write. But it is just, you look around this world and I think that um, you look around this country and nobody, you're right, there's no, who's got the plan? Who's got the plan? And like, can we just say, like, all anybody wants is their kid learning and feeling, you know, pretty confident that they could do so in a pretty safe environment with adults who are all on the same page. I mean, the same thing that we know makes good schools, makes good policy. Like, let's all get on, to a reasonable extent, the same page about, like, what the basic thing needs to be here. And we can't seem to do that. So Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. It's just another Monday, Ned Policy. Yeah. Your story of the week plays right into this conversation. So I want to hear what you're thinking about before I go to my pick of the week. That, so that, that was a wonderful segue. It seems like you've hosted this show before. One, two times. I want to give a, a shout out to the New York Times where occasionally I get quoted, but where I've never been able to get a long form over the finish line. <laughs> In a story today, New York City will require shots for all education staff, including teachers and principals. The city is making the move to mandatory vaccinations. 
weekly testing that is no longer on the table. So just a, a, a couple of things about this. One, I actually think this is the right policy, and I've been confounded by how anybody could say you're worried about the health of kids 12 and under, but we believe weekly testing is sufficient to sort of like deal with the virulence of the far-reaching and evil Delta variant. The political reasons for this aside, that being New York's worst mayor in the history of history, trying to burnish his image before running for office someplace else again. The politics of that aside, I find this fascinating, not because of the the mandate, but because of what's come out with it and, and some of the things that are living around it. So on the one hand, no one, least of, least of all the president of the teachers union, Michael Mulgrew, seems to know how many teachers are actually vaccinated. It's, it's 65%, 75%, it's about 90%. And no one seems to ask very, like, no one seems to press very hard on, on why no one knows that number or, or, or that like everybody just takes it for granted. So I'm like, said like all of them are. I don't get it. Right. So, so that's the first thing I just, I just want to hang on that. The second thing, which, which is equally frustrating, I think, is that the FDA gave approval for the Pfizer shot. Maybe I'm violating my own health confidentiality, but I happen to be on team Pfizer. And it's interesting to me because I think that until kids 12 and under are actually eligible, the political window that is open to exploit all of this remains open. That's just me sort of like staring into the future with my my cynical hat on, but nothing short of 100%, I think, is going to stop the push to sort of like consolidate and like over-deliver services with federal money that, you know, that I think we're seeing um, coming out of school districts right now. That, that's kind of the second thing. The third thing that I think you know, which is like living all up against this. And I know it's a complicated issue. To me, is is the situation with remote option. Because New York City, right, doesn't know how many of his teachers are vaccinated, right? It's sort of like crossing his fingers and hoping it's a very high number. Doesn't know how many of his teachers are going to become like libertarians who are suddenly against government overreach with this vaccine mandate, <laughs> mandate right? Um, yeah like knows that there are scads of, of parents who, who for good reasons, bad reasons, health reasons or otherwise, still aren't ready to come back and prefer or, and want a remote option and still decided not to provide a remote option. And there are a lot of reform-minded folks like us and then like, you know, UFT people on the other side who are saying we need a centralized remote option, we, we need one. I generally find it uncomfortable when I'm sort of like advocating for the right thing with people that I know are advocating for it for the wrong reasons. But I'm curious to see how this remote option thing plays out in the very near future. And New Jersey has also adopted a similar uh, position, but it is still keeping the, the vaccine mandate. Medical experts keep telling us in the face of, as you put it, the evil Delta variant, like your best defense is like, layer it on. <laughs> you need yeah. the vaccine, you need the mask, you need to, like, don't be stupid, like, you do, do all of the things. And here, to the point about remote learning, there's no layering of any sort of plans of, like, what's going to happen when, like, as if folks didn't have, mm, I don't know, what are we going on, a year a and a half? A year and a half, a year and a half. This out. Like, when you, were, when you were sitting there saying, no, I'm sorry, we actually can't teach the children right now, were you... Uh, trying to come up with a plan for what would happen Look, when you, next time you say you can't do I, it? I just, I just want to say this, sir, and, and also I misspoke earlier. New Jersey still has the testing option, not just a pure vaccine mandate. So in April 2020, I wrote a piece that I thought was going to end my career, where I was just like, look, 
this thing is out there killing people, right? Like there's a lot we don't know. And down the stretch, like the video gamers say, I was like, get good at remote. That was it. I was like, get good at it. And there were lots of people who, lots of reform-minded people actually, who took the opposite side of that issue because they were just like, well, we know remote doesn't work and you know, whatever. And, and for me, I was just like, you know, A, poorly implemented remote doesn't work. And B, if the, the situation is that when people come together, somebody is gonna die, y'all need to get good at remote, right? And it is shocking to me, right, right that every other thing has been prioritized, including getting $190 billion from the federal government. Sure. But but that we still want to give to adults. That's yeah. that's right. But we still but we still don't have a, a remote backstop or a plan to make one that is well organized widely available to people. It it is a yet another. And I hate to be down on it, but but I have to because I'm I'm upset about this. Right. This is a big deal. We still don't have an organized plan for kids who get quarantined, for kids who don't want to go back. If, if you get quarantined right now, you're on your own, and that is unacceptable. Well, it's just a huge example of just exactly how, like, folks like you and I who live in a certain part of the ed reform world, right, pointed out for decades on end about how it's, you know, what is our friend Jeannie Allen and others, they call it the blob, right? Yeah, if, yeah. If, the, if ever there was an opportunity to really be forward thinking. And by the way, I'm not talking about blowing up the system. We could talk about that in another show, but <laughs> I'm all for. But if there was ever an opportunity for just districts to think about, how do I get better at something? How do I, you know, I'm gonna use a word I don't really wanna use, but how do I innovate? How do I make this work for kids? Because there are always gonna be kids that need a remote option. There are always sure. gonna be snow days in New York. There are always gonna be hurricanes in Florida probably more and more in the coming years. If we couldn't take this opportunity to figure out, I'm with you, I think we're all incredibly frustrated and we can just watch the dominoes fall and watch everybody pivot back. I don't know, give it to about Thanksgiving, right? Before- Right, there's, there's, there's one one other thing I wanna say about this I think, I think it's really important. And I'm sure you have a wonderful story to share with our listeners and I will try my best to, to add comedic fodder to it. One of the things that's most frustrating to me is like, look, civil society matters, right? And when the pandemic happened, I think one of the smartest policy moves was this thing called the pandemic EBT. Because all of a sudden somebody realized that like, hey, on weekends when schools aren't open, people find ways to get food. What if we just gave people money and they would go find food? Because schools are closed, right? And in that is an acknowledgement of the fact that, I don't know, there's a whole universe worth of restaurants and other things out there that actually feed people that, that, that aren't related to school districts. And one of the things I was reading a, a, a story recently about, you know, what I think we all know is that there's a lot, there are many mental health hurdles that kids have had to deal with and, and like integrating all that with a big return to school is going to be an issue. And instead of doing things like, I don't know, giving every kid $1,000 worth of ARP money to do telehealth or to enroll for a year with a mental health professional, school districts are like, oh yeah, we're just gonna hire a bunch more counselors. Yep. And the, like this displacing of civil society, right, for a replication in a more expensive way that in the future is just gonna be like, oh, we're gonna fire these people to pay for them anyway within school districts is like 
the worst, worst, worst kind of boxing out in a, in, a, in a time when we need more people. We need like everybody on the table. School districts is like, don't worry about it. We, we don't need your expertise. We're going to replicate it ourselves. And that too is deeply troubling. It's deeply troubling. And I'll just end with saying like, and they couldn't even, there aren't enough counselors in the world to spend all the money these districts. Correct. Like Correct. it is, we've done, I've been doing some, you know, calculations on just like, if you just use the state and local fiscal recovery funds in most states, you could give every kid in the state something like 500 to $1,500 to spend on, you name the service that, uh, that kids need right now. Yes have tons, gobs of money left over to spend on other stuff. Like, I don't think people really realize the scale. And it's just, well, you know, we'll be talking about this until 2030. <laughs> yeah, no, you, we, we probably will. We, yeah. we probably will. We'll probably still be here on the learning curve, Darrell. And you can, and Gerard will be on a yacht. And, That's and right. It gets us in the summer. Yes. <laughs> Except for global warming. Anyway, okay. So my story of the week, I don't know. I don't think it's going to get us as riled up. But I want to start with a question for you, and that is, how do you feel? Like, how often do you see schools advertised on billboards? Not on the billboards outside of my window next to the road on the way to the Holland Tunnel. So uh... <laughs> I was just, you know, I was just uh, where I grew up in Michigan, and we were driving from downstate to upstate or up north, as the Michiganders call it. And I, I love, I don't know, as a charter school fan, I love seeing like, you know, billboards that say like new charter school opening, enroll here. Uh, I don't know. It's some. Oh, no, I used to see that in Newark all the time. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's good stuff. And but so this my article from Chalkbeat, Colorado, that I've chosen for this week, it's by Yesenia Robles. And it's entitled Adams 14, which is a district in Colorado, sure. facing another year of declining enrollment looks to attract students with billboards. And I just, the reason I love this so much is it's sort of like, okay, so I guess this is a sad story because declining enrollment, right? And by the way, it's not just due to the pandemic. Those of us who think about these things a lot know that enrollments have been declining in school districts, in a lot of urban districts, right? Yeah, plus birth rates, birth rates in the West are down. And by the West, I mean America, not Colorado. But, but not that we would close any of those schools and consolidate them, right? We have to keep them open and keep sure. the staff and, and keep the monster moving. And this is also a district that had been cited for, was still being cited for underperformance among other things. But here they are trying to get a little bit creative in attracting students to this school and their big play is billboards drawing from, I don't know, the charter school model, let me call it. And I just, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, I don't know whether to be sad or happy or laugh because part of this is just speaking to the idea that enrollment was already declining. And then you've got parents who are just saying, I'm not doing this. You had nearby school districts saying to these families, hey, this Adams 14 district isn't serving you well. They're being cited for underperformance. Come on over this way. And I love a little bit of good, healthy competition. I thought yeah. school districts hated it, by the way. I thought this isn't something that, that yeah, was they, okay in public education. Yeah. But here it is. It's happening. I'm wondering if we're going to see a lot more billboards popping up around this country, Jarrell, because as we know, enrollments are down everywhere, and in many cases because of what you were just discussing about this uncertainty as to yeah. our I mean, what's the name too? Like open enrollment is popular in, yeah. in Colorado. Just it's popular in Arizona too. Uh, I, I always look at this as like when that billboard's up, 
and it's a charter school that's like the vicious capitalist school system. Oh, and, and when it's up and it's the school district, it's like uh, community outreach, you know. Yeah, um, and also give us more money. <laughs> yeah. The Arizona case, I think, is very instructive because like even in a place with a lot of charter schools, the scale of choice is actually between districts. Like charter schools bring that into existence in a way where like every district is all of a sudden trying to make a good seat for a child, which is what we want, right? Like it's what you want to see. So maybe a good thing in Colorado. I like Colorado. We'll see. I, yeah, we all love Colorado. It's pretty good. We'll get back and visit. All right, we're going to switch gears here because coming up, we have yet another, I'm just going to say, yay learning curve, Pulitzer Prize winning author and Frederick Douglass biographer. So right after a musical interlude, <laughs> we will be speaking with Professor David Blight. Listeners, today we have with us David Blight. He is the Sterling Professor of American History and Director of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale University. He is the author or editor of a dozen books, something to live up to, including American Oracle, The Civil War in the Civil Rights Era, and Race and Reunion, The Civil War in American Memory. He produced annotated editions of Frederick Douglass's first two autobiographies. He's worked on Douglas much of his professional life and has been awarded the Bancroft Prize, the Abraham Lincoln Prize, and the Frederick Douglass Prize, among others. His 2018 definitive biography, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, won the Pulitzer for History, as well as the Lincoln, Bancroft, and Parkman Prizes and other awards. In 2021, he was elected to the American Philosophical Society. Professor Blight, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, we're really, um, really glad to have you here. We are so lucky on the learning curve to have such like a wide variety of guests. And I know our listeners are going to be very excited about this. So, okay, you've obviously, I've read your bio, you have had a remarkably distinguished career. Could you talk to our listeners a little bit? It's a two-parter here. First of all, uh-huh. how were you originally drawn <laughs> to a career in history and, and, and studying the life of Frederick Douglass? Could you also talk to us a little bit about Walter O. Evans? So you you dedicated sure. your award-winning biography of Douglas to Evans. Could you tell us about him as well? Well, sure. I always love talking about Walter because without him, this book wouldn't have happened. I got drawn to history as a teenager. It was growing up in, believe it or not, Flint, Michigan. I didn't have any relatives or family members who were into history. But I was drawn in by reading (laughs) the books of Bruce Catton. Bruce Catton was the most popular narrative historian of the Civil War in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And I, somewhere in my teens, started reading him. Some of his great books were books like Stillness at Appomattox and Glory Road and uh, many, many others. But it was then as a high school teacher that I really began to cultivate a serious interest in history. I mean, I had a serious interest in history in college, too, even in high school. I had two great high school history teachers, one in what used to be called Western Civs and the other in U.S. history. But when I got out of college, the only thing I wanted to do was to teach American history. 
I didn't seem to know any better. And uh, they hired me in the Flint public school system. At that point in the seventies, early seventies, the city was still very prosperous. It was still growing, you know, the kind of second Detroit, the auto city. And I taught there for seven years, did a master's degree in history while I was a high school teacher part-time at Michigan State, where I was also an undergrad. Before those five, six, seven years were over, I was just determined to see if I could go to do a PhD somewhere if they'd have me. I only applied two places. One was at Michigan and Ann Arbor, and one was at Wisconsin. Michigan didn't take me, and Wisconsin did. So that's where I went to graduate school. And in graduate school, I went there in great part to to study the era of the Civil War, of slavery, of Reconstruction, and especially of abolitionism. That's where I really began as a scholar. And I did my dissertation on Douglas. So I have been on and off studying Douglas all of my professional career. I've done other books, but he is at least some small part of every book I've ever done. Now, there are many reasons why I ended up landing on Douglas, but you asked about Walter Evans. Well, Walter Evans is the collector of African-American manuscripts, rare books, and artworks, uh, whom I encountered with great good luck about 15 years ago now in Savannah, Georgia. I went to Savannah to give a talk to middle and high school teachers, which I've done many times, about Douglas's narrative, his first autobiography, which is widely taught. And that day, I got introduced to Walter, who took me over to his house and showed me a portion of his Douglas manuscript collection on his dining room table. And that's what led to this relationship, dear relationship with Walter and his wife, Linda. Walter is an African-American retired surgeon who grew up in segregated Savannah, but then came north for his higher education. He went to first Howard University and then to the University of Michigan Medical School. And he practiced in Detroit as a general surgeon for some 35 years and did very well at it. But his great passion through many of those years was collecting. Over the years, among the things he collected was this manuscript material of Douglas. Now, he has, he has collected lots of other stuff, I must say. that He isn't just a Douglas collector. But that day, I met the most amazing man I'd ever met. And uh, Walter and Linda invited me into their home. I didn't decide overnight to do a Douglas biography. That took some many, actually took many months to ratchet up the courage to commit to do that, to do a full life of Douglas. And I ended up spending, um, I don't know how many weeks in Savannah. I would go there for Yale spring break. I must have done five or six Yale spring breaks down there. I went many other weeks at a time, and I simply did lots of this research on their dining room table, which became for me uh, <laughs> the, the most remarkable archive I've ever worked in, and I've worked in a lot of archives. So that's who Walter is, and I dedicated the book in part to he and his wife, Linda, for all of their hospitality to me and for that collection. I would also add just quickly, over the years, we negotiated on and off with Walter to try to get him to 
sell this Douglas collection to the Beinecke Library at Yale, which is one of the greatest rare book and manuscript libraries in the world. It took a long time. He uh, didn't want to part with it. Uh, and then he wanted to part with it, but he um, he wanted, uh, you know, the right price. And he waited until my book came out, et cetera. And uh, I'm happy to say now that as of February 2020, just before the pandemic hit, he drove this entire collection all the way up here from Savannah in a rented van. He brought it here himself and uh, turned it over uh, to the Yale libraries. It is now in the Beinecke Library. It is all fully digitized, including massive scrapbooks that they digitized. And now the whole world can use that collection. That is amazing. And what a place the Beinecke Library is. I can picture it right now. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I have to say, as a fellow Michigander who grew up oh. just south of Flint, I appreciate your origin story and Walter's connections to Detroit. That's all That's all oh, yeah. uh, pretty amazing how you met. Yeah, we're, bo we're both Detroit Tigers fans, uh, long-suffering, but uh, yeah, long -suffering. yeah. Sure. <laughs> but I, that's it's really quite amazing. And using his dining room table as your workplace, also amazing. Now, you mentioned, Professor Blythe, you mentioned that you often talk to, to students and teachers about your work and about Douglas's life. And, yeah. you know, so many things we could say about this current moment in American education and especially in sort of the culture wars over what gets taught in America's classrooms. I, I mean, I've. Right. Again, two questions. I'll lead with the first that's on my mind, and that's just in general. What is it that you hope students and teachers should really take away about Douglas's life? I mean, I think most of us study Douglas at some point in our educational yeah. career, and probably in really broad stroke. <laughs> and I'm wondering, right. wondering what you would really deeply have folks know yeah. about this incredible yeah. Yeah, well, thanks for that question. It is so important right now with the history of wars in our faces all over again. We've been here before. First of all, what young people take from Douglas when they first read the narrative and then they learn even a few more things is that Douglas makes uh, a tremendous coming-of-age story. His coming-of-age, however, was in slavery. But coming-of-age in slavery was... I mean, people don't always want to hear this, but it's a very American story. You know, there were four million slaves in America on the eve of the Civil War. Uh, it was the greatest source of wealth in American society, uh, wealth in terms of owning people. But Douglas also is this remarkable example, and I'm not suggesting he was some, you know, pure model of Horatio Alger or anything, but he is this remarkable example of what can be overcome by the human spirit, what can be overcome by the human will. Uh, he had many good pieces of fortune and good luck while he was a slave. He was a slave for 20 years, 11 of them out on the eastern shore of Maryland and, 11, and nine of those 20 years in the city of Baltimore. And the fact that he spent that much time in Baltimore has everything to do with why he ever escaped and why we even know about him. But he gained his literacy in Baltimore. He, he connected uh, with religion in, in deeply serious ways in Baltimore. He attended four different churches. He was involved in a free black community there. He was even involved in a debating society. He, 
He learned to work with his hands in the docks and the and the shipyards of Baltimore. And then he uh, plotted his own escape by train and by steamboats in about 38 hours from Baltimore to New York City in 1838. So for young people in particular, in search of somewhat heroic stories, uplifting stories, there's that side. But there's also the rest of Douglas's life. <laughs> he lived to be 77. He lives all the way until 1895 after being born out on the eastern shore in total obscurity in 1818. But here's the key. Douglas lives on as few other people in our culture through his words. He wrote millions of them. He mastered the English language. He had a sensibility with metaphor. He had a prophet's ability to capture the meaning of great pivotal events, uh, the meaning of great legislation, the meaning of great catastrophes and great tragedies. And above all, he had the capacity with language to explain what slavery really was, what it did to the human soul, what it did to people, what it was doing to Americans. Which I imagine is part of what could really, these personal narratives, his, his prolific writing is part of what could help American students really start to understand the horrors of slavery, something that we are currently wrestling sure. with how to teach in American classrooms today. Is that is it something that you hope, you think, you, you want most American students to be capable of? Is it something that you advocate for when you, when you talk to oh. teachers and students? Oh, God, yes. I mean, I wouldn't even be there if I wasn't advocating it. Yeah, I mean, it isn't just Douglas. There were plenty of other slave narratives. Before the Civil War, there were approximately about 65 slave narratives published in the United States. That is, memoirs or autobiographies of some form and, and different lengths by former slaves. These were the original African-American literature. Autobiography by former slaves were the original genre of black writing in the United States. It was also, and particularly in Douglas's case, he could, because he was the best of those writers, it was the, the act of seizing the language of the larger society and then employing that language back onto that society reminding them of their creeds, reminding of them of their sins, and reminding them of their possibilities. Nobody did that quite the way Douglas did. We also are talking now constantly, aren't we, about democracy. I mean, we're talking about race all the time, and that's all to the good. Well, it's usually to the good, depends on who's doing it. Uh, we're in the middle of this, this big fight again about how to teach about racism, how to teach about slavery, or in some precincts, whether to teach about it at all. But we're talking constantly these days, at least since the Trump administration, about whether an American democracy is really working, whether it's functioning, and what it even is. Here again, in the 19th century, Douglas really became what I call the prose poet of American democracy. Nobody explained, although Walt Whitman 
comes very close as well. <laughs> but nobody explains the sheer depths and breadths and meaning of democracy to people. And by that, I don't just mean institutions of government. It's how people live, how people uh, view each other, how people acknowledge the liberties and natural rights of other people. Nobody explained what democracy could be in America in the 19th century when it got transformed by the emancipation of the slaves quite like Douglas did. He's a voice there about race and all that goes with it, but he's also a voice about this elusive, powerful idea of democracy. Professor Blight, you, you described this beautifully, not as a Michigander, but as a Marylander who grew up in Baltimore. Uh, <laughs> Douglas uh, country, yes. yes. Indeed, indeed. 180 years ago this August, Fred, uh, Frederick Douglass delivered his first major anti-slavery speeches in New Bedford and, and uh, Nantucket. And you spent a, a lot right. of time talking about his, his eloquent delivery and the, the way in which he describes the human condition um, under slavery. Would you discuss him just as like a morally powerful and compelling orator, uh, including his 1852 speech, which I, I read in an Aspen seminar uh, as an adult, what to the slave, what, what to a slave yeah. is the 4th of July. Yeah, well, Douglas is above all two things. He's an orator and a writer. The only real weapon Douglas ever had was words, the power of words. He was first an orator because he's developing his oratory even while he was a slave as a teenager. He gets up in front of what he called his band of brothers on the Freeland farm on the Eastern shore when he's 17, 18 years old. And on Sundays when they'd have some hours off, he'd take them off into a brush arbor. And because he was literate, very literate, and the rest of them by and large weren't, he would preach to them. He would, he would show them how to get up and, you know, talk in front of people. Now he's still an ill-formed orator at that point, but as you said, he gets discovered after he escapes from slavery to New York, he moves up to New Bedford, Massachusetts, the great whaling capital. He works down in the docks. He worked in the, you know, in the whaling maritime industries. But he also got involved very quickly at the local black church. It was a, an AME Zion church. And by the time he's 21 and 22, they have him in the pulpit. He's preaching. And there he actually learned some formal homiletics. He learned how to preach to the text each week. And he gets discovered there by some abolitionists from Boston who were devotees of William Lloyd Garrison, and they invited him out to a, a major anti-slavery convention on Nantucket, as I think you were referring to in August of 1841, where he gives a, a first kind of formal address to a white audience. And he was a very compelling storyteller at first. That's really what he would do. He would get up and tell some of the stories about his youth that he ends up putting in that first narrative about five years later when he writes it up. At first, he was an, he was a, an orator, a storyteller, but eventually he develops many forms of oratory. He could take an audience from here to there. He could take an audience to a place in time. He could mesmerize audiences by creating and describing characters in his life and characters in his story. And then he became especially adept at using all kinds of biblical story and metaphor. 
Douglas could could very often capture in a single King James version biblical metaphor the meaning of a certain moment in time and meaning of of the condition of slaves and the meaning of abolitionism itself the meaning of the politics of anti-slavery and what he developed also as an orator was technique and method he at times was brilliant with sarcasm he also became a great mimic he would sometimes prance around the stage and as though he was John C. Calhoun or as though he was some white Southern preacher giving what, what became known as the slaveholder sermon. And then he got very good also at just basic ridicule and satire. So he learned as he matured, and, and let's remember, he, he's starting in his early 20s with not a single day of formal education. But I should add here that this was not just somebody who popped into history as a natural orator. He really practiced it. He read like crazy. Okay. He read everything he could get his hands on from newspapers and magazines to eventually books when he could afford to buy them. He read about oratory. He read interpreters' guides to the Bible. He read philosophy. And he especially began in the 1840s to read fiction, especially the English romantic poets and a lot of the British writers, and then ultimately, especially Shakespeare. A typical Douglas speech by the late 1840s into the 1850s, two or three uses and references of Shakespeare, and at least three or four uses and references of biblical phrases, biblical metaphors, or biblical characters. And his audiences, a 19th century reading, somewhat educated audience, was almost always familiar with the Bible and almost always familiar with Shakespeare. Your love of Frederick Douglass, it comes through, Professor. <laughs> and like all great men, and perhaps with Douglass, you know, one of the, the greatest men, they're nothing without, without a woman pushing them on. Uh, and, and in yeah. this case, two women, his first wife, Anne Marie Douglas, and his second wife, Helen Pitts Douglas, who was a suffragist. Would you just talk about them and their influence on him and his relationship sure. with them and more about his role in the women's rights movement in the 19th century? Well, that's a very big subject. There were also a few other women who pushed him on, too. But the two wives are, of course, crucial. First of all, Anna. Anna Murray Douglas. He met her in Baltimore when he was still a slave. He was probably about 18 when he met her, 17 or 18. She was about three years older. She was born free out on the Eastern shore, just like, in fact, she was born only about three miles from where he was born. They might've even played at the same mill when they were children. I don't know that for sure. They meet in Baltimore, probably in a church gathering of some kind, although we don't know for sure. She hitched her wagon to this smart, handsome young guy and think of her bravery in doing this when he when he hatches his escape plot which she was deeply involved with she had everything to lose too she had a job working as a domestic servant in a white people's house uh, well-to-do white folks hired black women and she had at least a paying job now it didn't mean she had any rights or much of a future but when douglas escaped he made it to new york he wrote a letter to Baltimore to someone we have not been able to identify who let 
Anna know that he was safely in New York City. Anna was not literate and remained a non-reader writer the rest of her life, which is a complicating factor of their marriage, to say the least. But she then got on the same three trains and the same three steamboats and made it to lower Manhattan by the same route that he did. And they got married in New York City the day after she arrived and headed on to New Bedford. Now, Anna's place in his life is crucial. The marriage lasted 42 years. They had five children. The fifth, Anna's namesake, Annie, died at age 11 in a diphtheria epidemic. Huge loss for the family. But four other children, a daughter who was the oldest, uh, Rosetta, and the three sons who all live into well into adulthood, were the center of Anna's life. And the home was the center of Anna's life. The difficult thing about this part of Douglas's story is, well, twofold. One is just getting at Anna historically as a scholar, since she never wrote anything. Everything we know about Anna comes from other people's observations about her. And there's a good deal of that. And I did my utmost in this book to find those shreds, all kinds of them, about Anna to be able to represent her. For example, three of the four adult children wrote reminiscences, at least short ones, about their mother, which are priceless. And two of them, I must tell you, are handwritten narratives of roughly about eight to 10 pages that are in these Evans scrapbooks that I encountered in Savannah. It's the only place they exist. And when I found those, oh my God, those were, you know, for a biographer trying to figure out his family life, those were crucial. One of them, in fact, is entitled, the one by his son Charles is entitled, Growing Up in the Douglas Household. <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't name it better yourself if you, if you invented it. So what we learn about Anna is that she's very private. She did not like social gatherings. She ran a tight household. She was a temperance woman. No booze in her house, if she could help it. She created a huge garden up in Rochester, where they lived the longest period of time. She was famous for her orchards, apple and peach and pear orchards. And she never traveled with Douglas. Never. Well, almost never. It just wasn't her world. Her world was thoroughly domestic. Now, that should not surprise us. We have to remember, we're talking about 160, 170, and 150 years ago. This is the 19th century. A black woman who remained illiterate. Why she remained illiterate? We don't fully know. What we do know is Douglas, his children, and even others went to great ends to get her tutors, and it never worked. And we don't know why. It might have been neurological. Uh, it might have been social. We just sure. don't know. Anna was the pillar of his house, uh, as he once said. But Douglas, because of his itinerant speaking career, which was constant, and because of his role in abolitionism and then his role in the post-war years out on the road, he was gone, oh, easily half the time of their lives. Now, when Anna died in 1882, 
Douglas came apart. He had uh, what I think was kind of his second breakdown in his life, or maybe even a third, but uh, he really came apart for a while. This was the loss of a core meaning in his in the whole trajectory of his life. There'd have been no family without Anna. There'd have been no fame in many ways without Anna's support. And he went off by himself. This is all in my book. He went off by himself for almost two months up to Maine. They were living in Washington, D.C. at that point. He went up to Maine to a place called uh, Poland Springs, which we now get bottles of water from. There was a little resort up there. And he may have actually stayed with a farmer for part of it, because there's a letter that indicates that, but he may have stayed at the resort too. And happily, he wrote a bunch of letters back to his daughter, Rosetta, reflecting on life. And uh, it was a very uh, interesting, somber time for Douglas. But he quickly revived, to say the least. And about a year and a half later, he married Helen Pitts, a, a woman 20 years younger, very well-educated, Mount Holyoke graduate, a college graduate, which for women was pretty rare in the 19th century. She came from uh, Western New York, over south of Buffalo. She, was, uh, she came from a family with strong anti-slavery credentials. In fact, Helen had worked during the Civil War in contraband camps, escaped slave camps around Washington, D.C. as a missionary, as a teacher. She caught malaria there. They had to force her to go home. She moved to Washington in the 1870s, as did so many people, and she got jobs in the federal government. And one of those jobs eventually was as one of the eight clerks in the recorder of deeds office. And she sat at a desk directly next to Rosetta, Douglas's daughter, whom he also hired. And they were almost the same age. On a day in uh, February of 1844, Rosetta was sitting at her desk and a reporter came by and said, uh, it was toward the end of the day, and said, uh, do you realize your father uh, just bought a marriage license up the hall today? Because it was City Hall in Washington. Sure. And I don't, I don't know exactly what Rosetta's reaction was, but it must have been something like, what? <laughs> <laughs> because Douglas and Helen had kept it totally secret. They told nobody. They got married in the parlor of a young black minister named Francis Grimke, who was good friends with Douglas that afternoon. And then they let the, the press know by evening. And clearly what they decided to do is to take the flack from this marriage. Most famous black man in America marries a white woman 20 years younger. You know, that would be news even today, I guess. Sure. I don't know. Maybe maybe no one would care today, but... But in the 19, in the 1880s, it was the most scandalous marriage of, of that century. And it went on for months in the press, white press, black press. He got condemned from all sides. He also got supported by people, by all accounts. Through the last 11 years of Douglas's life, this was a wonderful marriage. They traveled together. They read together. They plotted and planned together. Helen moved into Cedar Hill, Douglas's big house in Washington, and much to the chagrin of especially Rosetta and the other now adult children, she took over the house. To put it 
nicely. Douglas's four adult children did not take well to Helen. <laughs> yeah, stepmother. I mean, Helen, the idea of Helen being Rosetta's stepmother when they're the same age is, of course, almost ridiculous. Sure. But for Douglas and Helen, it was a great marriage. They even made a tour together of 11 months all over Europe and the Mediterranean in 1886 into 1887, something Douglas had always dreamed of doing. I've left out a lot, but these are the two marriages in Douglas's life. They are profoundly different, as you can see. And the second one clearly represents, if you want, a need in Douglas that hadn't been fulfilled in the first marriage. But the first marriage, let's remember, came from him as an 18-year-old kid and a slave meeting this talented domestic young woman in Baltimore. They fell in love, and then look what they experienced together. They escaped, in effect, together. They built a life together. They built a family together. And he built a career with her deep support. It's a complex story about that marriage, I can assure you. And it is with Helen, too. But Douglas's domestic life, I have to say, was something he never writes about in his 1,200 pages of autobiography. He wrote three autobiographies. And you learn precious little about either marriage. You learn almost nothing about Anna. He is almost entirely silent. In fact, there is one mention in 1,200 pages of autobiography of Anna, and she is called my wife. She doesn't even get named. Helen has a little bit more appearance toward the end because he does describe their tour of Europe. But he does not write about his children, at least in the autobiographical mode. Happily, there are a lot of letters. Never enough, you know, if you're the biographer. But a lot of letters survive between Douglas and his children. And those two were very complicated but deeply loving relationships. It was not easy, I might simply add, finally, to be Douglas's son sure. or his daughter. And it shows in many, many letters that do exist between the children and their father. Professor Blake, we're delighted to have you on. We'd love to have you share a passage from one of your books with our listeners, if that's okay. You warned me of this just before we got on, so I'm going to choose the actual ending of the book. It's actually two paragraphs, if I'm allowed. Please. Uh, and, and in it, I use a verse from Robert Hayden's famous poem called Frederick Douglass. Robert Hayden was a modern African-American poet. He wrote this poem in the 1960s, and then I, I use it then as a way of ending the book. It uh, goes like this at the very end. If slavery and race were the centerpieces of American history through the 19th century's rise, fall, and then resurrection of the Republic, no one represented that saga quite like Douglas. As the modern poet, Robert Hayden, so beautifully put it, when it is finally ours, this freedom, this beautiful and needful thing, needful to man as air, usable as earth, when it belongs at last to all, when it is finally won, this man, this Douglas, this former slave, this Negro, beaten to his knees, exiled, visioning a world where none is hunted, alien, 
this man superb in love and logic, this man shall be remembered. Oh, not with statues rhetoric, not with legends and poems and wreaths of bronze alone, but with the lives grown out of his life, the lives fleshing his dream of the beautiful, needful. Douglas was the prose poet of America's and perhaps of a universal body politic. He searched for the human soul, envisioned through slavery and freedom in all their meanings. There had been no other voice quite like Douglas's. He inspired adoration and rivalry, love and loathing. His work and his words still wear well. What shall we make, though, of our Douglas in our own time? The problem of the 21st century is still some agonizingly enduring combination of legacies bleeding forward from slavery and color lines. Freedom, in its infinite meanings, remains humanity's most universal aspiration. Douglas's life, and especially his words, may forever serve as our watch warnings in our unending search for the beautiful, needful thing. Professor Blight, thank you so much for sharing your words and your time with us. I really enjoyed this. Glad to be on. And we are going to end today, as we always do, with our Tweet of the Week. This one is from our friend Andy Rotherham, who linked to an article in the Washington Post. And this is about remembering names. The tweet is, remembering names can be tricky. Lots of strategies flop, but one actually helps. So you're pretty good with names, aren't you, Darrell? I'm good with my own name, but I'm ready to learn. Go for it. Oh, no, no, no. I feel like you're like a, a guy that can, that can network like you do. I feel like you don't forget names. I have such a horrible time. I'm always saved at conferences by name tags. But this article, it's an interesting one. It's about like the author saying like how as we all start to go back to some more in-person events and there's no more like boxes on Zoom with people's names on it. <laughs> I was going to have a lot of anxiety about who people are. But it's, it's an interesting, cute little read because it talks about, um, and actually this is something I tell my kids, it talks about strategies for remembering names. And apparently one is after you meet someone, you're supposed to continually repeat their name to yourself in your head every 30 seconds. I always tell my kids, if you can repeat somebody's name like seven times, I think I learned that in like an undergrad psych class, then you're going to retain it. But it's a really it's a really good read, useful as we all go back to in person. And, and let's be clear, sometimes it might not be that we haven't remembered people's names. It's just after a year and a half of COVID, we might not recognize our friends anymore. Yeah. So all, all, all I'm saying is that, like, if you if you're out on the street saying somebody's name seven times, make sure you do it alone because <laughs> that could go sideways. Last Monday, I was giving a speech to some people and like midway through the speech, I was like, I also cannot read social cues anymore. So, uh, <laughs> It's been a minute. It's been a minute. It's yeah, good good times as we re-enter polite society. I suppose not that this is very polite society, but well, next week. Well, first of all, thank you so much for joining me this week. It's always such a pleasure. Uh, happy, like I happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Always have fun. Next week, I will not be here. Look at that. I, I won't be on a yacht. But Gerard is going to be back with co-host. And our guest is going to be, I think, a friend of yours, Gerald, Nancy Poon Lu, who is She's awesome. 
All right. She's awesome. And she is the COO for the EF Plus math program. So we're all looking forward to that. And Jarrell, I hope that you will come back and visit with us again sometime. Oh, good. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.